it's not enough to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. And the easiest way that I explain that when I work with people is you have to kick your own off first. So if you take yourself into another person's situation or circumstances and you look at that situation from your perspective, that's where the whole thing is fundamentally skewed. You have to look at it from their perspective. Hi, my name is Anita Novak, and I'm the author of this book. Welcome to season 12 of Purposeful Empathy, a show that is dedicated to amplifying the voices of people from across the globe who understand that the world needs more empathy and are doing something about it. Thanks for watching. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a new episode of Purposeful Empathy. Today, I am joined by Neil Lewis, who is the founder of The Empathy Coach, an organization that specializes in empathic, relationship-based leadership, coaching, and communication. For over 25 years, Neil has specialized in personal development. And in the last decade, he's explored the key principles, behaviors, and mindset that is required to face even the toughest challenges with resilience. And what he's found is that it all comes down to one key skill, no surprise, empathy. He believes that everyone wants to be happy, peaceful, and energized. Empathy and empathic practices are the key to unlocking everyone's potential to that happiness, he says. Quote, I am on a mission to prove the relevance of empathy to every aspect of the human experience. Welcome to the show, Neil. Thank you. It's really cringy hearing you read that back because I know I wrote that one, sent it over to you and it's like, oh, did I really say that? But yeah, it's true. It's true. Well, <laughs> you found a kindred spirit because I think we're both empathy enthusiasts and empathy evangelists, right? Absolutely. 100%. So I know that we have a few questions um, to, to cover, but I always like asking about the backstory. So mm. I would like to know what called you into the empathy space, if there's any kind of twists and turns or pivots that are that are part of the story. Yes. So I think that, I guess there are a couple of key sort of sort of milestones, if you like, that, that, have, that have kind of get, got me to where I am. And I always think it's interesting thinking about somebody's journey and where your journey takes you. And sometimes you can experience real hardships and trauma and at the time you just don't know why that's happening to you and it's only when you look back that you you can see that it's all it's all part of the journey and you know I, I think there's there's like a lot of people I think my journey's very much been trauma informed so some of the challenges that I faced in my early years some of the challenges that I faced in my teenage years you know being diagnosed with depression and anxiety in my early early 20s and 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 all of those things prompting or nudging you on a journey of self-discovery and and kind of coupling that with a corporate career that I kind of fell into which was very much around learning and personal development but again I look back now and think it's no coincidence that I fell into that it was absolutely part of my journey and and the directions that that took me in in terms of learning more about human behavior and sort of the psychology of learning personality type theory and all those things that I picked up and it's there's no kind of one thing it's just a real sort of culmination of all these little steps and I guess one of the biggest things that happened to me was in sort of 20, in 2014 um I I mean I was 34 at the time <clears throat> Had a good job, decent salary, married, home, all sort of sort of all pillars stable and secure. 
And then within a few days, I uh, lost my job and my younger brother passed away very suddenly and unexpectedly. Um, he was 24 at the time. He was 10 years younger than me. And it was when two of your sort of foundational pillars are, are I mean, when, when one is rocked, it's bad enough. When two are rocked at the same time or completely torn out from under you at the same time, it forces you into that space of, of real self-reflection and 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 questioning a lot of things that you thought about about your life and a lot of things that you just took for granted and believed were completely true and and I guess that's what trauma does trauma it, it just shakes all of our foundations it rips out from under us everything we thought we knew everything we thought we believed so it was a it was a bit of a back to basics for me at that particular time and I had to find coping strategies that I'd never found before. Uh, and I found counseling, psychotherapy and mindfulness and yoga as for sort of, diff I, I, I get it was things that I'd probably been previously quite scathing of and trauma forced me into a space of, do you know what? I am so ill-equipped to deal with this. I'm willing to try anything. So sort of that, that mind just having to be open and, and trying new things and finding just the most incredible communities, support, and what's really interesting about all the things that I found in 2014 is that a real cornerstone of all those things is, of course, empathy. And I thought I knew what empathy was, Anita. I learned about empathy in 1998 when I first went on a customer service training program for my first job. <laughs> you know, I got told about stepping into the customer's shoes and I thought that's great I've got that licked and then a couple of years later I started training people that very same slogan yeah step into the customer's shoes and it wasn't until I I, I started sort of moving more into those spaces of really understanding personal development personal reflection counseling and psychotherapy that I understood that there's a lot more to it than that mm. and and one okay I've probably been getting it wrong <laughs> for about 15 years <laughs> thought I get thought I understood it didn't but actually that that realization of what it actually is and how powerful it, it can be but also how it's it's a conscious choice it's a deliberate choice that we make really made me realize the power of it and 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 yeah and from then on again quite a serendipitous journey I ended up working with um, two psychotherapists, going into business with two psychotherapists, and we created a psychotherapeutic training organization, which was all around giving um, some of the more accessible counseling and psychotherapeutic techniques to anyone, to corporate people, to frontline public service practitioners. I love the chapter in your book about um, the healthcare workers and the real warriors out there that are, are making such a difference. I spent five years working. I'd spent 15 years working in the private sector. I then spent five years working with the public sector. And wow, what a, what a, a mindset shift that was for me to, to go from working with CEOs and leaders to working with paramedics and social workers and, and police officers and sex offender managers just a real totally different different pace but actually on the back of my own traumas and I laugh about it now you know after experience after losing my brother and after being made redundant I, I really was struggling to care about things like display screen equipment assessments and all the HRE corporate training stuff that I'd done before I needed my life had changed my outlook on life had changed 
and you know I needed to think of I needed to align myself to something that just that meant something to me and actually moving away for that and move and stepping into working with people all the time that are just doing such incredible work and I, and I can't I can't speak for you know what happens in the states but I know here in the UK you know those frontline public service workers they they they're not particularly well paid they don't get a massive amount of investment because they're so so busy and it's public money so it was such a privilege to spend that time working with those people and supporting those people and just maybe having the tiniest bit of difference in how they face into their day and they support the people that they they need to support um it was just such a privilege so and then sort of five years five years of working in that space there were some changes in our business I stepped away very amicably still work very closely with that business and then the pandemic hit and it was I was on a I was on a contract at the time and I lost that contract everything just down tools and there was that moment of oh what am I going to do now and then I just thought well what are you going to do now for the first time ever in your life you can choose Mm. so and I'm going to get to the end it's a very long story in two seconds um I did the the ikigai which is in your book I sat down I did the ikigai I kind of mapped out all the things that I could do all the things that I could learn all the, and, then, and then correlated it with all the things that I actually really loved about everything that I'd learned over the years and that which the world needs and I was left with one word in the middle it was empathy mm. and that's where the empathy coach was born Incredible. So what do you actually do? So what's the work? So, so give me some okay. examples of some of the clients you work with. Okay. So there's three arms to my business. The first arm is the learning arm. So this is where I will work with individuals and teams to, um, to e open their minds and expand their perception of empathy in much the same way that I had my mind opened. It's not as simple as stepping into somebody else's shoes. There's a lot more to it than that. What gets in the way? When is that easy? When is that hard? You know, how, how do we use empathy with purpose and and and, and deliberately? Uh, so that's the sort of learning side of things. And I work with I work with corporate teams. I work with individuals. Um, I work with I still work with private sector teams as well, really teaching them how to not just think empathically, but demonstrate empathy as well, because it's all very well thinking empathically. How would anybody know that you're being empathic? You have to demonstrate it, too. Mm -hmm. So sort of really helping people to understand how to think empathically and how to demonstrate empathy. That's the learning side. The coaching side is working more one on one with individuals to uh, understand their own unique barriers to empathy, their own unique blocks where they perhaps struggle with individuals. But I also do um, relationship coaching. So I'll work with couples or with leaders and direct reports or with peers or friends, parents and children to help them understand each other more mm. and, and, and understand that actually what we'll have here is we'll have different approaches nothing right or wrong just different and if we could understand each other's approach and each other's intention then actually we'll we will come at, we will come at each other from a very different space um i use empathy very much in workplace mediation as well that's another, I mean, it's it's i guess it's it's kind of in the coaching realm um but yeah but that's so that's the coaching arm and then there's the consultancy arm which is where i will work with organizations to understand what are your customers saying about you what are your employees saying about you know what do employee engagement surveys tell us what do line manager indexes tell us about the emotional intelligence if you like of your organization mm. okay and then what do we need to do 
what 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 are what are the goals what are the what are the hurdles that we need to cross to address some of these that these challenges that you're you're having with customers or with staff to make your organization a more empathic place a more compassionate place um and a more emotionally intelligent place beautiful so what do you think over the work that you've done is the biggest myth that people have about empathy uh i think the biggest myth is that we all just do it. (laughs) So many times when I've kind of gone into those situations, working with individuals or whether it's training, and I mentioned the word empathy, everyone thinks that they do it. I thought that I did it for years, Anita. So I'm not about shaming people in any way. It's, for me, it's about enlightening people in the same way that I was enlightened, that actually I thought I understood it, but you know what, I didn't. It's not enough to put yourself into somebody else's shoes. And the easiest way that I explain that when I work with people is you have to kick your own off first. So if you take yourself into another person's situation or circumstances and you look at that situation from your perspective, that's where the whole thing is fundamentally skewed. You have to look at it from their perspective. And to do that, we have to seek to understand. We have to ask so many questions and from a curious space, not from a space of agenda, where actually I'm just asking you questions here so I can try and change your mind or convince you to think differently or face into the situation differently. I need to understand how you see this situation, how you're experiencing this situation, not not how I would if I was in it or how I did when I was in it, if it's a shared experience. You know, it's not about me, it's about the other person. And I think that's the, that to me, it seems to be the one that I have to go through time and time again, is that actually it's not about stepping into somebody else's shoes. It's about kicking your own shoe, understanding yourself. There's a huge amount of self-awareness required, understanding your, your own values, your own views, your own beliefs, so that you can put them to one side and choose whether they're actually helpful in this situation or not. Mm-hmm. And all I need to do is understand what's going on for you right now. How are you how are you experiencing the situation emotionally? What's going on for you? That and that and that's when I can that's when I can respond in the right way. Mm. If I if I don't understand what's happening for you, I'm like, well, I, I might get it right and I'd be lucky, but more often than not, I get it wrong. And the trouble is, if we inadvertently are unempathic with somebody or are invalidating to somebody and, and I, we will do this we will be unempathic and we will invalidate people all the time completely unintentionally but when we do that we've lost the connection hmm. it's going to be what really does that look for like to... for example i can think of examples but in your hmm. in your perspective what does it look like when we unintentionally unvalidate somebody unintentionally okay. react in an unempathic way Again, the simplest example that I often use is, is let's say, for example, you have a friend who um, January time, they've had a nice Christmas, they probably ate a few too many mince pies and a bit too much turkey, and they'll say something to you along the lines of, oh, I just feel so fat right now. Mm -hmm. And because I'm a good friend, I will say to that person, don't be ridiculous. You look great. You you look fine. I think I think you look fantastic. I think, well, what are you talking about? Now, the intention there is to make that person feel better. Mm -hmm. What I have just done is completely invalidated their experience Mm. and demonstrated that I don't understand Mm -hmm. their their, their perspective. 
that I actually challenge their perspective, that I think that they're talking. So it's almost like now, not only does that person feel fat, they also feel stupid. Mm. <laughs> and that and that's a really, really simple, basic example, but we will do it all the time. Every time we tell someone not to worry about something, every time we tell someone to calm down, mm. all of those things we will do mm. with the best of intentions, but actually all they do is invalidate the other person's experience. So what would be useful in that circumstance to, to how to respond in a way that would validate and would be seen as more empathic? So for me, it's about reflecting back what you're hearing, reflecting, and, and again, this is why it's it, it, all these things. Which, as I'm reading your book, and it's coming, I'm thinking, yes, yes, yes. It's absolutely, it's absolutely right. You know, we reflect back our understanding of that person's experience, and we reflect it back accurately. Mm. What that does, so, so for example, that friend of mine that says, "I feel so overweight right now." You know, mm. I can, I can offer back something along the lines of, "I'm really sorry to hear that you feel that way. I'm gutted that you feel that way." Or it's horrible when you don't feel good about yourself. Mm. That might be my response. Mm. That's the empathy. That's the, the subconscious message I've sent there is I get it. I hear you. I understand you. We're connected now. Now I can potentially work with you. Now I, I have a chance at challenging you in the right way. You know, offering you a Socratic question, for example, around, you know, is this the way you always feel or how often do you feel this way or what's contributed to this? Let's explore it. And 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 I can do that because we're connected. But the minute I invalidate somebody, we're disconnected. So anything I offer is likely going to fall on deaf ears because the barrier's gone up. You don't get it. And nobody does it intentionally. Well, I don't believe anyone does it intentionally. But when we validate somebody, when we demonstrate our understanding of their situation, and I know these are really sort of straightforward examples, but I tend to find that they're the ones that are the most easy to relate to. When we validate somebody and we communicate our understanding of, of their reality, we are connected with them then. But actually, and again, similar to something that you write about in your book, we're slowly chipping away at any gaps in that person's self-concept or self-esteem that's the long-term power that empathy has in the short term it can connect us it can diffuse tension it can demonstrate our understanding it can put us on the good foot to actually explore something and maybe solve some problems in the long term repeated empathy repeated you know demonstrations and understandings and acceptance of an individual chips away at, at anything that's 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 sort of killing their self-esteem or their sense of self and it and it, it's a tiny little message that says you're okay mm. it's okay for you to feel the way you do and and that's where it was a real real privilege to work with um the frontline public service teams because they're dealing with people whose self-esteem self-concept is completely wiped out all the time mm. and you inadvertently invalidate one of those people or are unempathic to those actually all it does is reinforce that behavior that i'm not good enough or i'm a bad person or i'm 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 a waste of space whatever that person's self-esteem would be and we have an opportunity to have the opposite effect on somebody's self-esteem mm. now this yeah, sounds trauma-informed because i imagine so i'm just going to throw on my skeptics hat for a second this is not okay the lane that i swim in but let's just yeah, say yeah. for argument's sake um mm. Somebody's saying, oh my gosh, you know, all this validation, all this like touchy feely stuff. Like we need to hold people accountable. We're a high performance culture, um, you know, get on with it. Mm -hmm. uh, what do you have to say about that? 
So you can do both. And actually, you're far more likely to be able to hold someone accountable and someone to be committed to their accountability if they feel understood. Because I often think those cultures, whether it be in a family or in an organization, that feel very compliant. Compliance cultures, you will only ever get the bare minimum from. You will only ever get what is you will only ever meet expectations in a compliance culture. And what you also might find is that people in a compliance culture will work very hard to prove you wrong. Mm. They'll be resistant and they'll challenge. Now, where you have a culture of commitment in a relationship, a family, an organization, actually what you get here is people that will work really hard to prove things right. You will get people that will go above and beyond, that will work really hard to, to go on the journey with you and to support you and to realize your vision whatever that might be and in my experience empathy as a as a, as a practice and as a tool and as a technique and, and, and as a fundamental cornerstone of any relationship is what ensures that culture of commitment mm. and that uh, and brings people on that journey um if I think about some of the corporate organizations that I've worked with over the years where teams feel misunderstood or feel that their senior leadership populations are out of touch in their ivory tower and don't get what it's like down here for us actually these are compliant workforces where a workforce feels represented by the senior leadership population and understood by the senior leadership population and changes or transformation in those cultures is communicated in a way that is meaningful for the workforce that is a demonstration of empathy. Comms and engagement teams hate me, Anita, because I'm the person that says, you can't just have one story. <laughs> you need to have several versions of the same story. One that will satisfy your shareholders, one that will satisfy your senior leadership, one that will satisfy your workforce. And that, and, and it's the same story, but it's told in a different way. And I always say my sort of key with that is make the audience the star of your story. So actually, if you've got a message to communicate to a particular workforce, they're the star of the story, not the shareholders, not the leaders. Hey there, I don't mean to interrupt a fabulous conversation. I just want to draw your attention to the fact that there are so many other great conversations on my YouTube channel, over 120 episodes with already 25,000 views, completely organic. Thanks to you, my listeners, viewers, watchers, please subscribe. The world needs more empathy and you have a role to play. Okay. So in a post-COVID world, let me ask you about a very specific yeah. situation. I'm, I'm, you know, when I was giving talks as we were coming out of the pandemic and there was a start, this move back to work, um, yeah. I, I was asked, you know, what can we do to, to help expedite the feeling of us, you know, feeling reconnected again. And mm -hmm. my answer was, well, go for a beer, like plan a gathering that has nothing to do with work and just mm -hmm. let people reconnect as human beings before mm -hmm. having like, you know, work, work meetings. So that was at the beginning. And now I'm I, I often asked, well, the, the, the leadership want to bring people back into the workplace Mm -hmm. And the workforce uh, is really excited about the idea of more work at home and less at work. And there's it's, it seems to be a bit of a tension 
And I mm. understand both sides of the argument because I actually think it's not so much about oversight and sort of micromanagement. That's that part I don't agree with. But the idea of people coming together in physical spaces actually mm -hmm. helps reconnect people. And there's a lot of, you know, pro-social outcomes that, that that derive from that. But at the same time, I also respect that employees do like to have um, agency over how they spend their time. And, and so I'm just curious to know what you think about that particular conversation. Well, it's an interesting one. And, and I and I noticed this quite early on in in during the pandemic. Um, and and, a, and a, a great example being because I do a lot of work with um with personality type theory, and I've I've been a student of the Myers Briggs type indicator for a long time. Love it or hate it. Everyone has their own opinion of it. I love it. I always have. I've found it far more beneficial than not in in all the years that I've used it. But I talked quite a lot in, in the early days of the pandemic about introversion and extroversion. And it was really interesting to see the dynamics change for people. So actually, it, it, in my own, in my experience in the conversations that I have, actually quite a lot of people with an introversion preference liked the going to home working and going to having space. And it's it's really interesting. My, my husband and I, I'm an, intro, I'm an extrovert. He's an introvert. And it was really interesting to see the dynamics changing our relationship because I went from being out and about, training different people, speaking at events and just being constantly surrounded by that hustle and bustle of energy, which really energizes me to working solely in this little room. <laughs> and he went from being in a really busy, hustly, bustly office, all open plan and people sort of pulling him, pulling on him from, from he's, he's quite, a, quite a senior leader. So he'll have a lot of people asking things of him to going to his little office, which is just at the end of and the other end of the hallway from mine. And the shift in dynamics where at five o'clock he would bounce out of his office energized feeling great had a great day because he'd been he'd been able to engage when he needed to and then not and just have that time in between it was just his I would be dragging myself out that door <laughs> because his energy levels had just gone up and mine had just come down so and it, and it was really interesting so and, and I'd gone from so he would get he would get home from work pre-covid exhausted drained wiped out because it, he'd spent all day de-energizing so I think it's it's that to me is is another consideration for us when we think about how we perhaps move into a new world now with more hybrid working, I think. And, and I guess in my head as well, one of the things that, that I, I'm always asking this question and I'm sure that you will understand that as you were telling me that story of people are saying we want to bring more people back to work. My question is why? Why? Why do we want to do that? And why are people... Why are some people all for it and why are some people resistant to it? And we've got to understand, we've got to understand all of that so that one, we can create a solution that is a little bit harmonious. We're ticking everyone's boxes. And, and again, just at very simplistic terms, think about introversion, extroversion. How does hybrid working tick both of those boxes? And secondly, when we communicate that shift, when we tell people or when we ask people, because we really should be asking people to come on this journey with us rather than mandating that journey, true collaborative working. When we ask people to do that, we validate in that ask. We acknowledge that actually this is going, that, that we're going to keep some of the good stuff. We know that actually some of you might lose a little bit of something, but hopefully you'll gain something here. And we don't 
we don't kind of have that whitewash positive message that that glosses over the stuff that we talk about all the stuff that people are going to gain and sometimes that's not stuff that they're really bothered about gaining and ignore all the stuff that people are going to lose we've got to acknowledge what people are going to lose as well and actually and 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 again the subconscious message that we send when we acknowledge what people are going to lose when we validate that loss is you get it you and this person understands it this leader understands it and do you know what i appreciate that they've acknowledged my situation and i'm and i'm more likely to get on board with their vision because i don't feel like i'm being ignored or glossed over so i don't know if that was a really long-winded way of answering your question <laughs> I love that. Just to think about the energy, because um, it's not about control and command. It's about it's, it's it's almost the same idea of, you know, you have multiple children. Is it fair to treat them all the same way when they're really different personalities yeah. and have different needs? And so th that's yeah, that says a lot about sort of the, the nature of management and leadership to adapt mm -hmm. for the different needs of different people, at, but to still mm -hmm. find um, balance so that nobody feels like things are unfair based on, mm. you know, different outcomes. Yeah. Of, of, yeah. I mean, I, I'll be honest with you. One of the things that's really resonated with me so much so over the last maybe 10, 15 years is that we need to be moving all cultures to, to, to focusing more on the result than the process. So, I mean, I, I, one of my clients at the moment, you know, I just observed, I observed recently um, a leader in that business was was challenged on, on working times. And I, it might sound like a really straight, a really simple thing, but it's been really hot here in the UK the last few weeks and we're not really equipped for it. We don't have aircon in our houses because for the two weeks of the year that you would need it, it's not worth it. So, but when it's hot here in the UK, it's really difficult. And, and because a lot of us are hybrid workers now, a lot of this particular team was, is hybrid workers, being at home is quite difficult in the heat. And this person said, you know, how flexible are we around maybe managing our diary to do a little bit of split time so work in the morning bit of downtime in the I mean, it, it works in Spain you know bit of downtime in the afternoon and then kind of logging back on in the evening when it's cool and it's quiet and it was so great to hear that leader say I, I how you choose to work is entirely down to you as long as you're getting the results as long as you're getting everything you need to get done done you work best you work in a way that is most productive for you and I just love that because it's so empowering to somebody I mean and I know you talk about presenteeism in your book and I'm absolutely not a fan of presenteeism at all I'm a fan of trusting and empowering people and and not in, I see I see in a lot of organizations and this is often something that I address with organizations one or two people will make a mistake so we will then we will, we will basically change the rules for everybody and it's like, no, because 99.9% .9 of your organization can be trusted. Deal with the 0.1% of the organization that can't individually. Don't, don't sort of tr treat everybody then in the same way. It's, I'm, I'm punished, absolutely. So we've got to, we've got to get better at empowering people and equipping people to do the best that they can in every aspect. And I, you know, this this theory is transferable into marriages, into parenting. This is, I mean, it's, it's really quite broad, the people that I work with, because it is just so transferable. Um, and that's what I love about it. Before we, uh, before I ask you about 
you know, uh, the closing question that I love to ask my guests, a uh, uh, purposeful empathy story when you're on the receiving end. Before we get to that, mm-hmm. I just mm-hmm. want to ask a couple of quick questions um, yeah. about how you see the difference between empathy, um, uh, like if you think self-empathy and empathy mm-hmm. for others is different and how, and, and what we'd have to say about that. And then also a question about why do you think people struggle with empathy at all? Okay, so um, self-empathy and empathy with others. I think the set, personally, I think the same principles apply. Sure. The challenge that we have is that, and, it, and it's a great question that very often with the people that I'm coaching, they're being so unempathic towards themselves and so and so judgmental towards themselves and so almost self-shaming and I always ask that question if your best friend was going through this what would you say to them and they'll come up with some wonderfully supportive (laughs) offering for that person and then and my response is always the same so why would you be kinder to somebody else than you would be to yourself Mm -hmm. and actually if I think about and it I, well, I think it will, what I'm about to say will lead quite nicely into that final question because I, empathy starts with self. You, we've got to be able to deeply understand ourselves and our own challenges and our own barriers and our own journey and our, our own responses in order to unpick or dissect why we respond to things the way that we do and why what's happening to us and and and, you know a psychotherapeutic journey taught me that and then and I'm always very envious of this because psychotherapy seems like it's so much more prominent in the states it really isn't in the UK it still seems very much as a luxury item and we're on we're we're sort of we're still in that sort of leftover from baby boomers of oh you stick up a lip and sort your own problems out and and I used to be like that until I found myself completely ill-equipped to do it (laughs) and then psychotherapy just changed my life because psychotherapy is about teaching you how to empathize with yourself. And that's a transferable skill that you can then take into empathizing with others. And that real non-judgmental curiosity that you've got to have towards yourself and you've got to have towards others in order to truly understand and empathize with them. So that was that question. What was the other one? Um, why do people struggle with empathy? Oh yeah, absolutely. So I think there's a, there's, a, there's a number of things. One is our own internal value system and our own beliefs and our own personal experiences. We bring them into the situation. They get in the way. They almost they almost create these filters. There's a little video on my YouTube channel I call um, empathy the um, empathy armor, and all of those sort of are uh, sort of our personality, our beliefs, our personal experiences, our values. They create this coat of this very unique coat of arms. I wear one, you wear one. They're different. They might have things that are similar, but ultimately it's it's very unique. And what happens there is my armor protects me. We think about personal experiences, past experiences. I'll have put something on based on an experience that I've had. It's to keep me safe, but it can also act as a barrier between me and somebody else because it gets in the way of me understanding how somebody else experiences something. And this is where, going back to purposeful empathy, real deliberate and purposeful empathy is about, first of all, knowing what my armour is, deliberately choosing to take it off and put it to one side for a moment and deliberately choosing to try somebody else's on Mm. and that's horrible (laughs) that's hard it's uncomfortable it's 
somebody else's armor won't fit me or it'll be missing things that I need or it'll have things that I don't need. And, and I'll be looking at situations in a completely different way. And that's a real step out of the comfort zone. But that's what empathy is. And that's what purposeful empathy is, deliberate, deliberate empathy is. It's knowing my own stuff, deliberately choosing to put it to one side and deliberately choosing to understand what somebody else's is. Mm. Um, and that's hard. It's really yeah, hard. It's hard, it's it's hard because we're not used to it. And also because I sense from you that there's a degree of generosity. So we just have to kind of practice that too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think sometimes the, the the proof of the pudding is in the eating because it's very it's a very vulnerable space to put yourself in to take up again. The armor protects us. To take it off, mm. we'll feel very very vulnerable. Mm. So that that it's a it's a scary thing to do. It's, it's there's a lot of fear attached to that. All I would say is that it's worth it. It's worth the payoff because from my own personal experiences and the experiences that I've had with thousands of people over the last decade is as much as it's scary and it's vulnerable, it's worth it. Because right. what you actually get when you do that is you you understand somebody at a deeper level. You get to know what's really going on for them. You build that really trusted connection and that's when you can influence them and that's when you can help them. And uh, I, even even if that help is just just sitting alongside them in that muddy puddle. Yeah. And, and and then knowing that they're not alone, because most people, when they're sat in that muddy puddle, they will get themselves out eventually. And mm. they're more likely to do it if there's somebody there with them, alongside them to help them when the time is right for them. Yeah. So, yeah, it's a real it's a really vulnerable thing to do to to choose to be empathy and empathic. It will it will come easier in certain it, it'll come easier with people who, who, who whose armor is like ours. So, you know, one could say that actually you and I might find it really easy to empathize with each other because we've clearly got some some shared bits of my armor are like your armor. We will we we have drawn each other towards each other. That's what also similar armor does. It draws that towards us, which is similar. It repels that which is different. <laughs> so Neil, you you offer a seminar uh, on the five habits of empathic people. Is that what it's called? Five habits of highly empathic people. I'm a big Covey fan, so there's a, li there's a little bit of a there's a little bit of a um, a nod to Stephen Covey in that. But yeah, wonderful. Okay, we, uh, what's that all about? Give us the high level. What are those five things? So they're they're really sort of basic principles or habits that if if you can master those habits, they will basically mean that you lean into your life from a much more compa compassionate and empathic and curious space. Mm -hmm. uh, if you can master those habits. And I often think sometimes it, it, it's it's good to have just some direction or something that people can pick up or that they can grab quickly and say, right, what do I need to do here? What's the what's the habit I need to employ here to get me through this? So it was through, after years and years and years of kind of working in the empathy space, I was sitting down thinking, actually, can I come up with, it started out as five rules, the five rules of a path. No, this is not, these are not rules. These are habits. Mm. These are ways of being that we need to master. And that if we can master them, we could be truly empathic people. Beautiful. Would you share what those five are or yes. come to your seminar? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm happy to share. I, I, hopefully it'll be enough. People maybe maybe feel like they want, want to know more, but I'm happy to share. So the first one is um, believe that everything starts with a positive intention. Mm. And that's really just about tapping into nobody or you know 99.9 percent .9%, the general rule is nobody sets out to hurt anybody nobody sets out to derail anybody 
everyone's on their own journey everyone's living their own life and actually if we can get ourselves to a space of believing that everything starts with a positive intention we might then just get a little bit curious as to what's going on for that person if it's not really landing quite right or at the very least we won't throw a judgment out there we'll ask a question what's Mm -hmm. going on because this doesn't seem quite right so believe that everything starts with a positive intention the one um uh, one that's really resonates with me is everyone believe that everyone including you is doing the best they can right now Mm. and actually if 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 the way you're doing things right now is perhaps not as great as it was yesterday or isn't isn't as good as it could be tomorrow it's acknowledging that and and asking yourself why okay so what's going on for me right now if I'm not if I'm not sort of doing the best I can if I'm not doing I don't feel like I'm achieving what I could achieve my full potential what's getting in the way so but I'm not going to judge myself or tell myself that I'm a bad person or shame myself or guilt myself I'm going to get curious get curious isn't one of the habits but it kind of it runs it's a thread that runs through everything um the third one expectations are the mother of all disappointments (laughs) so this is just around checking in on actually how much are you in control of and how much of what you how much of what you you expect do you put on other people and it's really getting to that space of, you know what, other people don't let us down. Our expectations of other people let us down. Mm. And if some and if and if somebody doesn't meet our expectations, again, rather than judging it, it's an indicator. It it could prompt us to a space of getting curious as to why, as to what's going on in this space. But when we go straight to a space of judgment, and actually that person has deliberately set out to not meet my expectations and hurt me the whole thing is clouded so actually if we and if we could let go of expectations and trust that whatever is supposed to happen will happen whether that's everything goes as as planned or something happens that Mm. prompts us to ask some questions and get a bit curious and find out what went on it's almost about letting go of those expectations and trusting that whatever's supposed to happen will happen fourth one and this is a big one observe don't absorb Hmm. and so many I I, perhaps it's another myth around empathy that we need to bust out that actually people have that interpretation that actually in order to be truly empathic I need to feel what somebody else is feeling Hmm. and I encourage people to let themselves off the hook here because I think you don't you just need to understand it Hmm. you just need to know and you need to get you need to understand it accurately because when we make an assumption and we get it wrong, disconnection, invalidation. When we really understand how somebody else is experiencing a situation or feeling, that's when the connection is there. But we don't have to feel it too. And actually, some would argue that feeling the way somebody else is feeling actually makes their pain about me. Mm. It's not about me. Mm. And then the final one, set your boundaries and mm. communicate them. And I and this is just I think one of the biggest life lessons learned for me. It's the one. It's the habit that I out of all the four, the five habits, I think it's the one that still creeps up on me every now and again because I'm human and you know, mastery takes practice and takes time. But it's so important to to understand what your boundaries are, understand what's okay and what's not okay. But even more important to communicate that because people don't know if they're crossing your boundaries or not. If they don't know what your boundaries are, <laughs> and if you if you allow people to cross your boundaries without acknowledging that that's what's happened and calling that out and saying, do you know what? I wouldn't normally do this, but on this occasion, I'll make an exception. That means that the next time they try and cross that boundary and I say no, 
that's okay. They they'll understand that because actually on, on this occasion it's going to be a no. But very often people will say yes, 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 and then you get to the end of a tether, turn around and go no, and all of a sudden, well, why? What's wrong? You normally you're normally fine with all of this. Why all of a sudden is it a problem? It's always been a problem. I just didn't tell you it was a problem. Mm -hmm. so absolutely being somebody who knows what their boundaries are knows what's okay and what's not okay and communicates that to everybody around them so that everything is clear we know what's okay and what's not okay and you know I, I think it was Brene Brown that said you know some of the most loving and compassionate people that she knows are the most boundaried mm -hmm. and people think that being the people pleaser or a yes person is is what demonstrates compassion and empathy I would argue that that is actually a lack of boundaries is incredibly unsafe. So, um, so yeah, so they're, they're the five habits. Wonderful. So we're going to have information in the description notes below about how to get in touch with you for that seminar or all the work that you do. Mm -hmm. Neil, it's yes. been so lovely to have a conversation with someone who clearly um geeks out on empathy as much as I do um and I can sense how heartfelt it is for you and so it's been really a lovely a lovely way to spend part of my morning I know for you it's late afternoon I wonder if you could share a time in your life when you were on the receiving end of empathy uh and what that meant for you but trying I was trying to think of a specific sort of key moment in my life where purposeful empathy had a transformational impact on me and just going back to what we were talking about previously the example that I can think of is when I was deliberately empathic towards myself mm. um that I, I, and it it was a real sort of full circle moment for me when I was thinking about it in preparation for our conversation because I was I was thinking you know prior to that the level of expectation that I had heaped upon myself and the level of judgment that I'd heaped upon myself and um, the level of criticism that I'd heaped upon myself. I didn't even realize that I was doing, I didn't realize that I'd put all this pressure on myself or that I created all these expectations on, on, on myself over sort of 35 years and going, so again, going our, our conversation full circle, going back to that pivotal moment in 2014 where my life crumbled in a matter of days I had a choice in that moment to to judge myself to chastise myself to tell myself to just get on with it and just get over it and just deal with it and that would have come from a well-intended place I need a job I need to support my family <laughs> I need to do all those things but actually was incredibly invalidating on myself <laughs> I had a choice and the choice that I made was to deliberately be empathic towards myself. And I remember saying, I'm open to understanding more about what's happening for me here understanding why, why this is affecting me, how this is affecting me, understanding grief, understanding trauma and understanding how those things are very specifically affecting me. And just being a bit kind to myself for the, and possibly for the first time in my life, you know, and it, and it was, it's that I, I, I'm, I'm incredibly grateful for the wonderful life that I've had, but I can look back and I can see the challenges. I can see that, you know, growing up a gay kid in the nineties in the UK, not easy, <laughs> judged constantly, but empathy 
taught me to understand why that might have been so difficult. You know, that, I'm just I, I, a slight example of that, you know, looking back at in the 90s, what we were on the back of in terms of the, the terrible tragedy that happened with the AIDS AIDS crisis in the 80s. I understand now that homophobia was rife in the 90s because people were scared. People were scared of their kids dying. People were scared of, 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 of disease spreading. I get it now. I understand it. And I can look at it differently now than I could back then. And, and that's an example of how empathy is a choice. I could be really, really angry at what happened to me in, in growing up and the homophobia that I experienced and the bullying that I experienced. But actually, I'm not because I can understand where it came from. And I have a great sort of saying that I use in a lot of a lot of the work that I do. It might be unacceptable, but is it understandable? And until we get to a space where we're willing to understand, then that that we're, we're going to be in that judgmental space and that unempathic space. We've got to be willing to understand. And, and I guess yeah, that that moment, that time in my life in 2014, I was the most open and willing I'd ever been to understand myself and who I was and the journey that I'd been on and not just in those few horrible days where everything fell apart but everything that happened before that and it wasn't until I was truly I, I, I again I would say that was absolutely the catalyst of me becoming self-reflective I probably thought I was reflective ever reflective person before then I wasn't thought I was I became a, a more reflective person. I became a more compassionate person towards myself. And that was where I, I would, I would absolutely say I truly learned empathy and empathic practice because it started with me and then it went outwards. Mm. So, um, yeah, I, I, that, that for me, the, the first sort of experience I ever, I ever had of purposeful empathy was, was, was towards myself. I love that. And I just want to share for the record, I think we're probably 140 plus guests in. I think this is the first story of self-empathy being the lead mm -hmm. story. And I love mm -hmm. that, especially having lived through my own recent days and weeks of coming back from a book tour and feeling absolutely exhausted. It's not selfish to practice self-empathy. Um, it, it's necessary if we want to be empathic in the world. Uh, so thank you for ending on that note, Neil. It was, it was so lovely to have this conversation. Neil, it's been delightful to have you as a guest. Thank you so thank much you for having so me. so much for your time. Thank you for listening and watching. We'll see you next week at Purposeful Empathy. Thank you so much for watching an episode of Purposeful Empathy enjoyed this conversation subscribe to the channel and also consider picking up your copy of purposeful empathy it's an invitation to dial up empathy in your life the world needs more empathy we need more empathy what are you waiting for